You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Please rise. Court is now in session. Judge Seymour Watson presiding. Family Court of 5th District, Los Angeles County, now in session. The Honorable Marvin Monson presiding. All rise. You've heard it in countless courtroom movies. Everyone in the courtroom rises when the judge walks in. But what happens when it's a virtual courtroom with the judge in one place and the lawyers in another? Well, you end up with shirtless lawyers, barking dogs, and sometimes utter confusion. The need for social distancing means that judges are dealing with problems big, small, and just ridiculous. I've been talking to Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. So, Pat, these are things that law school did not prepare judges and lawyers for. Are most courts using video conferencing now in order to social distance? It seems like the courts, depending on the courts and their style, have used different options. Some are telephone-only, telephone conferencing. So I know some federal courts, for example, Brooklyn Fed and Manhattan Fed, you know, it's a customary thing to do telephone conferences. And the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments, of course, over the telephone, not video conferencing. Some states have completely gone video, virtual, and they're actually having their hearings on a video like a Zoom chat, and the state of Texas has put them on YouTube so people can watch it afterwards. Is that civil as well as criminal? Civil right now, at least for many of them, for example, like adoptions and things like that, some states have done that and put it on YouTube. Some states want to have wide-ranging access for the public because, you know, presumably courts are open to the public. But in some actions, there's a fear that some people might be basically taping or say a witness might get access to evidence they should not be privy to. You know, they can't exclude a witness from a virtual courtroom. So sometimes they've actually taken the option of cutting back on that public broadcast part of it so that it remains as if you had a closed courtroom with excluding certain witnesses. It really presents problems you never would have thought of. I know. What's one of the biggest problems that you've heard about? I covered an oral argument for the former head of security, basically like the head of Mexico's FBI, and he's a defendant charged in Brooklyn Federal And the judge had a telephone conference where he was hearing a bail application from his lawyers to let him get out. And it's open to the public in that the court on the docket posted the password to get into the conference call. It's more like a mechanics issue or housekeeping issue, if you will. The poor magistrate was trying to deal with all these journalists gabbing in the background. And you could hear them commenting. And they didn't put their phones on mute. And finally, the magistrate, in utter frustration, stopped the proceeding, and the court stenographer said, Judge, I don't hear anything. And then the judge started yelling, and he never gets angry. He's such a mild-mannered, lovely guy. He started yelling, that's because I'm putting everyone on mute. So I think I heard on the conference call, there were 60 people on the conference call. There were only six participants, the judge probation, the marshals, and the defense lawyers and the three prosecutors. So, I mean, six people were supposed to be the speakers in the court hearing. They would be in the equivalent of the courtroom well. And you could hear this jabbering going on in the background. And someone sounded like they were washing dishes. And you could hear clanking and gossiping in the background. And the poor magistrate was losing his mind. 
So it's a logistics issue sometimes. One of my colleagues, Alan Milligan in the UK, there was a really just a confluence of bad circumstances that happened in Julian Assange's hearing. You could hear loud coughing in the background. They gave out the wrong number for the bail application. So it turned out to be an office. And people kept calling in and the woman got increasingly frustrated because it was the receptionist at a brokerage firm. So she kept getting the wrong numbers. And finally, they cleared everything up. But it can be a zoo instead of a courtroom. And there it's such a high profile case. So we're getting used to the small problems like the fire engines and the dogs barking. Mine has been quiet so far. But shirtless (laughs) lawyers, tell us about that. I mean, people forget when they're on video conference, a judge had to tell lawyers that they were not wearing shirts and they should put shirts on. And in another hearing, the lawyer was told, apparently it was a female lawyer, that she had to get out of bed. You can't do it in the bedroom. (laughs) What about the attire? When you go to court, both men and women wear suits to court or something, you know, very professional. What happens in these conferences? Well, sometimes I did cover a hearing where the lawyer asked, he asked the judge on the video conference, if I have my screen open, do I have to stand when you come in? Because all you'll see is my midsection. You know, do I have to all rise or can I sit? And the judge said, yes, that's not necessary. Don't worry. You don't have to. You don't have to rise. So sometimes it's just like courts are so procedural and these long-standing rules that, you know, the court systems are very magisterial. And so moving from the courtroom to the kitchen desk is a little different. And I think there are people, there, you know, the good and the bad of the options. Some judges told me it's basically kept things going in the middle of a pandemic because you couldn't have the whole entire criminal justice system and the regular court system shut down completely. I mean, there's people that need orders of protection. Civil matters can get stayed if it's a premises liability suit. You know, for example, if somebody tripped and fell two years ago because of a broken sidewalk, that's the kind of lawsuit that you can probably put it on hold. But someone needing an order of protection or a criminal defendant getting arrested, do they get bail and how do you handle that bail application? So video conferencing has been like an amazing option. The New York State system literally in two weeks managed to wire up courthouses in all 62 counties of the state. And Chief Judge Lawrence Mark told me that, you know, this has been a boon in a way to keep things rolling. Do they feel, especially the chief judge, that this is a line that once crossed, they will not be able to go back or they won't want to go back to the old ways? I think it depends on who you're talking to and what kind of court system you're talking to. In some states, there was a webinar that the state of Texas had a lot of court officials two weeks ago. And they were saying, you know, this is going to be fabulous. You'll be able to do adoptions over the Internet. And that's an amazing process. New York State, for example, doesn't allow cameras in the courts. So that's not really technically an option. It's it's a good stopgap measure if you're an arrestee and you don't want to have to uh, transport, you know, the, think of the cops having to transport that prisoner to the courthouse for an arraignment, sitting with a bunch of other guys who are also possibly arrestees, and they're all in the hold, which you would normally do in a regular process. But doing it video conference from the jail, from the arrestee site, getting them arraigned, and then figuring out whether they get bail or not is a lot 
it's a stopgap measure, but not necessarily a permanent solution. So what they're trying to do now in New York State is everything's been on hold. They've put a basically an embargo against new civil lawsuits. So you don't see the hundreds that you would normally see in New York State being filed. They're going to try as of last week. They've now put a suggestion out to the judges that if you have existing cases and it's all fully briefed and it's waiting for a final decision from the judge on certain motions, like for dismissal in civil suits, go ahead and clear the decks. And if someone is possibly, potentially, you can work out a guilty plea or some kind of disposition in a criminal case, go ahead and do that. Because Judge Marks in New York, they get $3.5 million cases filed per year. And, you know, New York system is massive. And it's also New York City and New York State is the most heavily affected by the pandemic. So they're worried that when push comes to shove and this is all over, there might be a whole new slew of hundreds and hundreds of cases like the kind we saw in the wake of the financial crisis. I used to cover that courthouse, and you would see thousands of lawsuits having to do with deals gone bust, bankruptcies. As we discussed, Michael Cohen, President Trump's former lawyer, got an early release because of concerns about the coronavirus in prison. What other high-profile defendants have gotten an early release, and what are some of the policy concerns? Even in Brooklyn Fed and in Manhattan Fed, you're seeing high-profile criminal defendants, so the accused that want to get out immediately. We've also seen the convicted federal felons. So Michael Cohen is one example. There have been others that asked for compassionate release, including Vincent Asaro. He's an alleged Bonanno crime family capo. He was acquitted in the Lufthansa heist. So if you've ever seen the, mon- the movie Goodfellas, you know, they did that m- multi-million dollar heist at JFK. He was acquitted of that case, and, but he was actually convicted of a road rage incident where somebody cut him off and he got an associate to torch the person's car, track down the driver and torch the car. He's not compassionate release. Another person who got out is a a gentleman named Jose Maria Marin. He was one of the FIFA soccer barons that got convicted in the FIFA soccer scandal. He's uh, aging, and he was sentenced to four years in prison, but he won compassionate release. So a lot of judges are having to deal with these multiple applications, dozens a day, all through the federal court system, and they're having to weigh policy, public policy, health issues, and, and issues of compassion. I've talked to some former federal prosecutors who say they're a little worried that the pendulum is swung a little too broadly in one direction and that too many people who are probably gaming the system might be getting out. Thanks so much, Pat. That's Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Remember Martin Shkreli, the farmer bro? Known as much for his antics as for his misdeeds, like jacking up the price of a life-saving drug by 5,000%. Well, Shkreli has given a federal judge a really unusual reason for releasing him from prison early. Joining me to tell us about it is Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. So, Pat, he gave the now common reason of being susceptible to contracting COVID-19 and then a unique reason. Yeah, it's like he's anteed up his request. Most of these inmates say they want to get out because they're potentially at risk for developing COVID-19 or contracting it. And he's saying he could actually get out and maybe find a novel treatment for it to help find a cure. 
Is there any proof that he submitted with his papers that he's actually working on a cure? And I don't know how you work on that from prison. That's a very good question. He submitted a research paper to a drug company. There's an individual in this new drug company, an unindicted co-conspirator of his. His lawyers say he's done significant research from prison in developing molecules that can inhibit the coronavirus protein. And they say that one company is prepared to work on a clinical trial just within a matter of weeks if he's allowed to be released from prison. I'm sure they could work on the trial without him being released from prison, but is that sort of being put forth as a quid pro quo? Yeah, well, I mean, Shkreli calls himself a citizen scientist. He claims he's self-taught that he taught himself pharmacology, reading up at night. And there's no doubt he's a very intelligent young man. And his lawyers have said if he were released, they'd have no doubt he could probably find the cure for cancer. But it's unclear how a guy who's staying in a 12-foot by 12-foot cell, two other roomies in a federal prison could really develop this well enough. It remains to be seen whether the judge will buy this. He's long advertised himself as this scientist that could help find cures for lots of diseases. During the trial, there were allegations that he bought up the patents for orphan drugs that were basically forgotten and possibly buy up the patents for them and cornered the market on a drug. He did do that with that drug Dioprim, which he raised the price 4,000% or so. And he's been accused of cornering the market on this life-saving drug and profiting from it. So, I mean, it remains to be seen how the judge is going to react. He doesn't have a completely spotless record when it comes to being selfless. He's already lost a bid to get out of prison from the warden. He's in a federal prison in Pennsylvania. And now he's asking the judge who actually ordered him to prison early, a month after his conviction, because he put out a $5,000 bounty to his Facebook followers for a strand of Hillary Clinton's hair. And the judge said that posed a threat to Hillary Clinton. Like, how do you grab a strand of Hillary Clinton's hair without possibly harming her? So she ordered him immediately jailed after his conviction. And he was moved from a low security camp in New Jersey to this more secure facility that you're talking about in Pennsylvania last year. Why was he moved? There was evidence that he was conducting business with a smuggled cell phone in prison, which was a violation. They did an investigation and they moved him. Some people, you know, asked for a record of, look at me, I've done good time, I've behaved myself even in prison. And Shkreli, you could argue, doesn't have that spotless record. Just remind us what he was convicted of. It was a very strange trial. He operated his hedge fund called MSMB Capital. And he operated a series of hedge funds. And then he decided to morph that into a drug company called Retrofin. The government witnesses testified that basically it morphed into that because he used the money from MSMB, the hedge fund, to launch a drug company. And then when the MSMB investors started complaining, he basically took money from one company to pay off the investors in his original hedge fund. And he was convicted of three of eight counts of securities fraud for defrauding his investors in the hedge fund, as well as manipulating the stock in Retrofin. 
There have been many early releases, Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohn among them. But how likely is it that Shkreli will get out? He's only been in prison about two years and he has about three and a half more years to serve. Right. It's unclear. I mean, it's a very high standard. They have to show compassionate release. Most of the people that have gotten out, their reasons have been very specific, like a life-threatening illness, like they suffer from COPD or something like that, that puts them at greater risk. He says he has asthma and allergies, which put him at greater risk. It's quite a high standard. And the judge has already remanded him because of the Hillary Clinton incident. And then he got in trouble with the smuggled cell phone. He's got excellent lawyers who are making a very good pitch, but it's unclear that it will work. Thanks, Pat. That's Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.